Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, fellow constitutionalists, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Dan Clemens Show, a Christian political talk show. I'm your host, Dan Clemens, your constitutional warrior, fighting for your right just to be an American. It is October 24th in the year of our Lord, 2017. Remember, we're a hyphen-free, PC-free zone. God has stolen control and he does love you. And I'm broadcasting live from the Hemlock Studios here in the beautiful central Susquehanna Valley in the great Keystone State. I noticed I had a little bit of a hot mic there, making a few adjustments there. Uh, how are you this Tuesday uh, afternoon? It's after lunch already. Uh, we're heading for hump day tomorrow. Uh, real quick, you're talking about days of the week. Monday, uh, I will not have a, uh, a live show at all. Uh, I won't have a best of podcast either. I'm in the middle of switching things over, so that's not going to happen either on Monday. So Monday, I have to take the, the day off. Uh, about this time of the day, we have to be up in um, or over in State College. Uh, my daughter has a dental appointment that she does twice a year at a pediatric um, um, dentist. Uh, now, I know my daughter is over 21, but they'll take her up until uh, they deem it that it's, it's no longer appropriate for her to go there. But, you know, they have uh, adults that actually go to this dentistry, too, because of what they do. Uh, so and she's she really likes Dr. Bob. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> we are thankful that, that Deanna loves to brush her teeth and likes to take care of them. And she always gets good reports from Dr. Bob and, and her appointments and that. So uh, my, and my, but my wife does not like driving up there by herself. That's going to be a long haul for me. So Monday is probably going to be a pretty much of a wash for me to do anything Monday. By the time I get home, I'm probably going to be in, in a lot of pain. <laughs> I know. You know, it just, that's just the way it is each and every day. So, more so when I have to travel like that. So, hopefully, uh, you can hear me hear me okay. Everything's, all the sound levels are coming up. It looks like everything's broadcasting okay here. Now, I was going to go a couple different ways on, <laughs> on the title of the show. But I titled it, George W. Bush Great Democracy Speech. And I... Uh, <clears throat> I put explanation points behind it. I was torn with the idea of putting question marks behind it. Uh, but I can't put question marks behind it because there's no question 
that it was a pro-democracy speech. And in my opinion, and we'll get into it, I got some other stuff I want to get to before we get to his, uh, I'm going to share the whole video with you. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a little frog in my throat. And, and we'll go over the transcript, and we'll, we'll go back over that, so I'll save enough time in the show to do that. And I have been dealing with this idea for a long, long time, that people continue, and I think this is this is, is uh, being done on purpose. Uh, either the people who are repeating this lie don't know any better, or they were told a lie to make them believe that what they're saying is true. Either way, it's on the people, it's on the folks that are perpetrating this lie not to perpetrate it. And it's up to folks like me to, because I have the facts and I have the truth that are actually on my side, I think as long as I'm a political commentator here on YouTube and uh, on Blog Talk Radio and, and doing and, and loading up things to a podcast, as long as I am involved in that, I feel it's my duty to point out the facts and the truth. We are not a democracy. We were never founded as a, as a democracy, and no matter how much the progressives and the social democrats want to push us towards a democracy, we are not a democracy. And the argument that always comes back is, well, we're a type of democracy. No, a republic is not a type of democracy. A democracy, if you break it down, and let me redneck it for you, is mob rules, where the people vote on everything. They have a say in, in everything instead of going through our elected representatives uh, to right wrongs or to get things done constitutionally within the constricts or confines of the Constitution. Uh, in other words, we are a Constitution or, governed by, or a, a republic governed by a Constitution uh, representative by or governed by uh, the consent of the people with representatives. Are there democratic processes within that? Absolutely. I'm not saying that at all. But we are not and have never been, and a republic is, has nothing to do with a democracy, period. You know, we're talking about governmental, how you organize a government and how you, you know, organize how you get things done in a government. And again, a democracy is where mob rules, where everybody, you know, votes on everything. And, you know, if 51% of the mob says that we're going to take the rights away from the other 49% in a democracy, you can't stop them. But in a republic where we have elected representatives, that process can be slowed down greatly, and it should be slowed down greatly. The 51% of the people do not have the right to take away rights from the other 49% of the people that don't agree with them. And vice versa, the minority in a country does not have the right to be tyrannical. Now, I'm not saying the minority and their, and their rights, which rights, again, are colorblind, rights are asexual, and rights are amoral. They, just, they are just rights. They, if they're left by themselves and just left to sit there, they do nothing. It's what people, and people have these God-given rights before governments were ever formed. It's what people do with these rights that make them uh, racial, ethnical, sexual, uh, and, and moral. 
It's what they choose to do with those rights. And this is an ongoing struggle with me. And like I said, maybe I'm splitting hairs. Maybe I'm being too correct or trying to be too correct in this. But I don't think so because I'm the type of guy that words mean things. I'm the type of guy that, you know, if you call us a democracy, when you know, show me, give me the proof. I'll give you ample proof and have, and and we'll continue to do so in the future, that we are a republic, and I'll I'll give you the proof of what the founders and the framers of the Constitution uh, thought about democracies. They thought they were an evil, and they are. Again, where you have 51% of the people who can take the rights away from the other 51% or 49% just because they have a one-person majority. Now, people have come back and argued me, well, why don't we have a bigger majority when it comes to Congress? Okay, why, why don't we require Congress to have a 75% majority before they can pass anything? Honestly, you know, there's probably pros and cons to that. I would be more saying that would be more of a pro than a con. Uh, I think it would, and let's say we require 75%, just, and, and the only reason why I pick on 75% is because when you have to ratify the Constitution or you have to ratify an amendment to the Constitution, you need three quarters or 75% of the states. Why does not that standard carry over into Congress? Well, some folks will say, well, Congress won't be able to get anything done. Two thumbs way up, folks. There's a lot of things that Congress does and has done in the past and continues to strive to do in the future that are unconstitutional and are no good for the, the folks in America or our economy or our way of governance. It's just they're not. So if we can slow that process down, I think the better off we are. That's just that's my humble opinion. I do agree that I think we should have a, a bigger majority in, in the uh, House and the Senate. They, have, they ought to have at least 75% to be able to pass anything. I don't care if it's name of the day, the National Dan Clements Day. They should have 75% of Congress <laughs> agree to have a National Dan Clements Day. I don't want it just arbitrarily out of the blue and just give it to me because I'm a nice guy or I think I deserve it if, if, they, want, if they want to do that or whatever it is. You know, I'm just being tongue-in-cheek here. Whatever it is, I think it should, be, it should meet a, a three-quarter threshold. Now, maybe some stuff will get done, and maybe some stuff won't get done. Gridlock isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you have the idea that government's supposed to be doing something every, every day, every minute of the day that they're in session, that they're supposed to be passing some type of legislation. Matter of fact, I would love to see them take every even year or odd year, doesn't matter to me which one you want to take, and only emergency necessary constitutional legislation can be put forth and passed during that legislative sessions, those legislative sessions for that year. And the rest of it has to be going back over the federal code and getting rid of unconstitutional, outdated, arbitrary federal rules, regulations, and laws, actually voting them down, clean clean the system up a little bit. I see nothing wrong with that, but... But I still think you. I still think they need a 75% threshold in order to even do away with the old laws. And then, honestly, folks, I think in, in new laws, there has to be a sunset clause unless it's reauthorized. 
this perpetual author automatic authorization is a bunch of hokum. It should be, let's say, the Department of uh, Agriculture. It should be reauthorized. Not automatically. It should be, Congress should get together and say, do we, first off, first question you should be asked, is it constitutional? Second question should be asked, can we afford it and should we be doing it? If it is constitutional, which Department of Agriculture on the federal level is not constitutional. So, George W. Bush great democracy speech. We're going to go over that, but like I said, I promised I'd get through a couple things more today. And real quick here, uh, I do have an article here, Columbia Law Professor Letting a Right-Wing Activist Speak is an Act of Violence. And my buddy Dave texted me something I won't read. I won't read what he texted me, but, he, but it's, you know... He was putting forth some ideas and some concerns he had. One of the biggest concerns I see, and this was after Dave's uh, texting to me and made me sort of think about some, you know, this issue in a broader way. These uh, child adults, uh, these uh, folks that are on, uh, like I, I track indivisible guide groups, I, I uh, common cause, and uh, let America vote. Three, those are the three I chose to to keep an eye on. Because they are George Soros support, supported groups, you know, and and their tongue in cheek thing is, well, I'm still waiting for my check from George Soros. Ho 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 ho! Oh yeah, well, go look at the budgets of the groups that you're part of, and see how much money they get from open societies, the George the George Soros funded group, which I haven't confirmed this, but so there's some reports out there says that he's just cut them an 18 billion dollar check. I still find that kind of, that's a lot of money, but I wouldn't put it past George Soros. But they, these groups, if they're not getting their checks, maybe they need to check into the finances of that uh, group that they're part of. <laughs> but that's not, that's not a good argument at all. You know, well, you know, that, that, what is that? That doesn't disprove, or, do, you know, it, they try to discount George Soros' influence, but it doesn't disprove it. Well, I ain't got my check from George Soros yet. Okay. You know, I didn't say anything about checks. I said, uh, you know, I talked about funding. But here's, here's uh, what uh, Dave's text prompted me uh, as far as my thinking and, and, and you know, sort of expanded on this. Uh, I have noticed a disturbing trend like, like Dave had in his text that these student groups, and I'll pick on the students groups and colleges for right now. These student groups put out all these false accusations and some of them may not be false, but let's just say they're putting out all these accusations. And this happens with these, these three groups I, I described to you on Facebook and Twitter that I follow and I make comment on. They make these comments without, one, citing their sources and without backing up their comments at all. I got flies in here today. And they make these comments, and then when you refute them with actual facts, and you cite your sources about the facts... Their biggest complaint is, oh, well, that group, and it could, it doesn't matter who they are. And I try to find, when I'm refuting these facts of these folks, I try to find, uh, like the other day I used an article out of the L.A. Times. Now, the L.A. Times is not actually known as, the, as a bastion of conservatism. So, and nothing was said. I don't know if they accept it or not. Nothing. The LA Times wasn't bashed. The only times I hear any type of bashing 
is when they perceive it to be a right-wing publication or a right-wing think tank, so you can't believe them at all, even though they're sources and you go through and give them, go through their articles and actually look up the sources, give them links to the sources that are neither right or left. A lot of these are governmental agencies that, that, that are by law have to track uh, certain things that they actually do, and you prove to them that what you're saying is right with sites, you know, citing your sources, references, the whole nine yards, and yet they still, they will not accept that. But we're supposed to accept their accusations that this is wrong. It's just like this uh, in this uh, the Red Pill movie. Big Red, this feminist, Big Red. Um, and if you go watch the, the, uh, the Red Pill movie, it's it's fascinating movie uh, about men's, men's rights and the men's rights organizations that, are, that have cropped up because of this radical feminism. Well, she, they were talking about, at one point, they were talking about false rape accusations. And this Big Red, she laughed it off. Ha, 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 ha. It's only 2%. Now, she's citing a story, a Rolling Stone story, that, that put out a range of between 2 and 10%. But she chose to go with the lower 2% because it fit her narrative inside her echo chamber. And when I went and did a little research on this and actually quoted from the article and gave a link to the article, I haven't heard anything back from it yet. It wasn't to her. It was from the producer of um, uh, the Red Pill movie, uh, Miss Casey. Um, I put it on there. It actually turns out if you take, if you take everything into account, it's roughly 33 to 35% of the rape cases that are actually brought forth are actual. That means there are, of all the rape cases out there, that works out to what, 67% that, that are false or inaccurate, that's a huge number. That's a huge disparity over 2%. But the thing is, even in that movie, she didn't cite her sources. And I've watched her and other feminists, and I've watched these college students time and time again. Uh, you know, we're, don't you know, and this is something, you know, they put this out, don't you know that so-and-so or this group or that group is oppressed? And by you being here, that's an oppression against these groups. Don't you know that? No, I don't know that. And please give me the proof before you say another word, before you go on, you cite your sources that I can sit here on my laptop and actually look up and read and find out if what you're saying is the truth or it's just horse puckies. Okay? You, you, do, you do that. You know, it's not on me. I can disprove you all day long, but the problem with that is they are being those these college these these child adults in college, and some of these radical feminists, uh, they they are being intellectually lazy, because they want to put they want to put the whole thing on whoever disagrees with them. They don't want to cite their sources, and if they do, and you go over and read their sources, which I have been from this Christy White and this other, or Doctor you know Doctor Christy White. Um, and these other groups out there that I've been reading up on, 
they only report part of the statistics. They don't look at the whole body. They look at the statistics. In other words, they cherry pick to support their side. And they won't report, in fairness, they won't report the other articles that might might go against them. So it's, like I said, it's very, very one-sided. And, you know, we really, really have to work hard against this. But what I am starting to do is forcing these folks to cite their sources, and if they don't, then I don't give them any credit. Uh, today's show is being brought to you by one of my affiliate advertisers, Bluehost. That's who I'm with. That's who the DanClemensShow.com um, show notes page is with, is through Bluehost. They have um, a free domain service. They have free site builders if you're not really sure about how to build your site. Uh, they have one-click WordPress install. Oh, fantastic. For a guy that wants uh, a little bit more control over a website, you know, for myself, Bluehost has it all. Either they'll do it for you or you can do part of it or you can do all of it. They leave it up to you. Plus, they also have 24-7 support. they got good deals going on right now. So if you go to the DanClementShow.com and click on the Bluehost widget at the top of the page, it'll take you uh, to their portal. And if you like what you hear on the show, folks, please, um, uh, and if you're looking for some hosting services, please give Bluehost a, a try. And a matter of fact, if you get your hosting, if you get your hosting through Bluehost, drop me a letter. Go to my contact page on thedanclemmonshow.com. Drop me some information about what you've done. I'll verify that you got your hosting through me, and I'll give you a plug on the show about your website, as long as it's you know not adult content or you know pornography or profanity, anything like that. I'll, I'll, I'll plug you on the show here if you would do that. Okay, today's daily Bible reading comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 51, verses 9 through 12. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Here's David, you know, very contrite heart. You know, he had sinned against God. We all sin against God. And this should be our prayer also, and this should be in the back of our, our, our minds and in our thoughts about, you know, God staying with us. Even though we do sin, God stay with us. Today's quote meal comes from Dwight L. Moody. Character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are in the dark. In other words, character is, is what you are no matter if people see you or not. That's your character. Today's short Bible lesson is kind of an interesting one. And I'm going to ask you to go over and read that. I'm not going to give you any hints other than this, that, you know, from the title, Stop Stealing from the Bible. And I read that. Now, this is by Jack Wilkie over at focuspress.org. And he penned this and posted this back on uh, February 26, in 2015. But he makes some really good points about what the Bible is actually for. Stop stealing from the Bible. Good lesson. You might want to go over and see that. Okay. Let me get this. Uh, let me get this up over here. Like I said I, I am going to get to the tax things, but uh, I do want to. I do want to do this a little bit here. Uh, get these things out of the way. This one thing: Columbia law professor letting right-wing activists speak is an act of violence. And this is by uh, Rob, Robbie Sauve, uh, posted October twenty-third yesterday in Reason.com. Kayum um, Ahmed, an adjunct faculty member at Columbia's Law School helped students prevent a controversial right-wing speaker from giving a talk via Skype on campus. 
He also preemptively filed a discrimination complaint against the speech in question constitutes an act of violence and is a form of harassment and discrimination. I'm going to stop the reading. We talked about this yesterday on the show. We talked about this yesterday. These guys are off their rockers. Speech is not an act of violence. Unless it's inciting somebody to riot and, ca- riot and cause violence, it is not an act of violence. Me sitting here exercising my freedom of speech and saying what I'm saying, commentating on these, is not an act of violence. It's an, it's an act of civil public discourse. I'm putting my comments, my ideas out in the marketplace of ideas to see if they stand up and hold up to public scrutiny. There's no violence in that. The violence comes, and this this is one of Dan's rules of life, and I don't have any numbers on them, but this is just one of Dan's rules of life. If anti-freedom folks are saying, accusing you of something that is not true, you can bet your last dollar, if you're a betting person, you can bet your last dollar, they're the ones that are actually doing whatever they're accusing you of doing. And this is exactly, the violence comes from when these anti-freedom professors and these adult or these child adults in universities and colleges actually storm the Bastille, as it was, like they did with that group out at uh, um, UC Santa Cruz, where these this conservative republicans were in a basement out of public view and these these child adults came in there and stormed in there and disrupted the whole meeting when it shut down so what they're accusing the conservative republicans of doing which they're not they're the ones actually doing and that is a type of violence where you're actually physically coming into a room like that i don't know what your plans are I don't know what your intents are on my person or, or those around me. You're the one that are committing the violence. You're the ones when you actively come in and shut down free speech that way without, without sitting down and have some civil, civil public discourse and without airing your ideas out in the marketplace of, of ideas. And yes, and I've been asked this question before and I've, I've answered this before, would you allow Hitler in on this civil public discourse? And the answer is resoundingly yes. Even though I disagree with everything that man stood for, he has the right, he has, he has freedom of speech to say what he wants to say. Now, in the realm of civil public discourse, folks, as I, I love what that professor said at Brown University. He said, if someone says something so stupid, we need to take them to the intellectual woodshed. And that's what we have to do. And you can take any, any reasonable, thoughtful, studied person, doesn't have to be a, a college university person, can actually dismantle every argument that Hitler ever put forth. Real easily. And that's what you do in civil, civil public discourse. If you disagree with Robert Spencer because he's a white supremacist, okay, and he said he is, so I, I take him at his word, but... Does that mean just because he's a white supremacist and you perceive there's oppression out there, which again, you don't prove, you just say, well, the, you know, don't you know there's people being oppressed out, out here in the world by white supremacists so we cannot allow them to, uh, to be heard or their, their positions aired? Again, they give no proof 
to back up their statements. They're just making these statements to be inflammatory. And in order to defeat a man like Robert Spencer, you have to know what he's talking about. And a lot of times, you, you have to let people sort of say things in their own, not sort of, you have to let people say things in their own words because a lot of times, if they have a, and I just put this out, a wrong-headed ideology, a lot of times they give, them, they give their intellectual opponents enough rope that they can hang them with it intellectually. More times than not. Just like these child adults on these universities, they give you so much rope, you have excess left over in your intellectual arguments against them. And they know that, and that's why they don't want to debate these issues. That's why they want to shut them down any way, any means any possible without any intellectual um, capital being spent on their part. Everything has to be done on you know, everybody else's part to refute them instead of requiring them to actually come forth with the proof of what they're saying. Okay? I just wanted to point this out, this college professor. It just, it, it is. It is, what's happening in universities is ridiculous. Real quick here. Uh, Daily Signal over here, and uh, I have their, let's see here. Uh, Rachel Dell uh, Gudais. Uh, over at Daily Signal, post this on October 16th. New new report, GOP tax reform could boost household income by $4,000. Well, to hear the left and hear the, the anti-freedom folks out there, an indivisible guide, that we're all going to get hosed. We're all going to get hosed. A study released Monday by the President's Council of Economic Advisors found that Congressional Republicans' tax reform framework would produce thousands of dollars in income growth for American households. Reducing the statutory federal corporate tax rate from 35% to 20% would increase average household income in the United States by, very conservatively, $4,000 annually, says the report from the advisory agency within the executive office of the president. Income increases could reach as much as $9,000, according to the report. Using 2016 household incomes as the baseline, these effects translate into increase in average household income from 83,143 in 2016 to between 87 and 92,000 dollars, an increase of four to nine thousand dollars. Americans need an alternative. Uh, according to the nonprofit tax foundation, the U.S. Um, has for the fourth or has the fourth highest statutory corporate income tax rate in the world. The foundation's September report continues. Now, I'm going to stop the reading there. The, the because everything we've talked about on the show here, but what's the, what's being spun by the anti-freedom folks are that these corporations are not going to spend it on pay increases for their employees. They're not going to spend it on hiring more employees. They're only going to spend it to enlarge their own, either the share or the stockholders or the shareholders, their purses in, in the form of dividends, or pay the CEOs or the board of directors more money with this new newfound windfall. Now, they can choose to do that. Corporations can choose to do that. But the problem that, again, this, they're so deep into this groupthink, into this mob mentality, that they can't see the, the truth that's standing right before them. Corporations are not in lockstep with each other. They're just not. They do not collude with each other. Now, some do. I'm not saying it's, it's 100% they never collude with each other. Some do, and they get taken to the, the woodshed, as it were, for that. But 
if they're not colluding and they have a, by law, a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to make the company profitable, and let's say the only way they can, they can make the company profitable is that they hire more workers to make more profit to have a bigger share of the market of that product, then is that money going to the CEOs and to the shareholders and to the board of directors, or are they hiring more people? And let's say they can't hire more people at the wage level they're at because maybe Corporation C and, and uh, B and C are hiring people, let's say, a dollar more an hour and taking away the talent pool from, from this corporation that needs the same talent. So they, are, they have one or two choices. Either they just stagnate and don't grow and don't hire new employees or take this newfound windfall in uh, corporate tax reductions that they don't pay anyway but they take that windfall, they benefit from it, but they don't, they don't pay it. They take that windfall and say, okay, we need, these, we need these employees, and if we're going to be successful, we have to hire more employees to, to be more productive. We're going to offer them a dollar more or 50 cents more an hour than these people over there. And trust me, I tell you, when you're just down the street from each other, 50 cents an hour is 50 cents an hour. It's, that's a big deal. And people start seeing that, and competition comes in. And they never, they never take into account, anti-freedom folks never take into account competition at all. They don't. They don't take in, all they have is a Keynesian idea about government spends us into prosperity through tax dollars, and they're the, the, the spender of last resort. And they don't realize that, that that money has to come from someplace besides borrowing and printing. And if you borrow and print enough money, you're, gonna, you're going to have runaway inflation. You have hyperinflation. Look at what happened to Venezuela. That has to be brought under check and under control. See, they, they, the anti-freedom folks have a, a whole, their, their whole idea of economics is, is wrong-headed. And they, need, they, they really need to get a clue on this. That's why I use websites like uh, Foundation for Economic Education and Mises.org. Listen to guys like Tom Woods and, and Bob Murphy and, and, and read things by uh, Murray Rothbard and some other folks. Okay? Now, I have this other article, it's over at FEE.org, speaking of which, by Ralph uh, Ryland, History is on the Side of Tax Cuts. Now, one of the things, and I, I'm not reading the article here, one of the things that we have to um, remember is when Reagan got his tax cuts through, everybody named it trickle-down economics because they thought, you know, th this was only for the corporations, but they don't realize is that the tax cuts were, yes, for the corporations, for capital gains, the whole nine yards, but there was middle and lower class tax cuts too, just like there is in the Trump plan. Again, I talked a little bit about this on the show yesterday. I've been sharing it with as many people as I can on Facebook and Twitter who get this idea wrong, uh, that in the, even the lowest tax bracket, whatever that turns out to be, 10 15%, and we'll just deal with that, uh, if you get... $12,000 for an individual and $24,000 for a married deduction, that means your first $24,000 you earn is at a zero rate. So there's actually a fourth rate, tax rate. It's at a zero rate, and you only pay the 15% on anything to $24,001 and above. But they don't tell you that. It doesn't fit their narrative. And when you explain that to them, usually it shuts the conversation right down because they don't know what to say to that. Because if they're honest, they go back and research it, and they're like, well, yeah, that is part of the tax plan. 
So what am I mad about? You're mad because you're listening to people that have no clue what they're talking about and they have an agenda to try to get you to believe what they want to believe. Now, Ralph goes on here in the first couple paragraphs. Ronald Reagan's wrote in his autobiography, An American Life, my major was economics. But I think my own experience with our tax laws in Hollywood probably taught me more about practical economics theory than I ever learned in a classroom or from an economist. Now, you go down and read, I encourage you to go read this article. It talks about how in um, his Hollywood days that he uh, was getting 90% of his money taken from him in the form of taxes. 94%, excuse me. And so he's only able to keep six cents on a dollar of what he made. And that didn't give him any incentive to want to keep on working. It just didn't. So go read that. But the point I want to bring out here is people thought Reagan was a dummy. And he wasn't. He was very smart just because he didn't go to one of the Ivy League colleges or something like that. But his major was economics. The guy knew his economics. And yet there's people out there like Robert B. Reich and other anti-freedom folks out there, including establishment Republicans, who call it, it's trickle-down economics or it's voodoo economics, it doesn't work, when actually, when he did do that, when Kennedy dropped the taxes, when Reagan dropped the taxes, there was more money coming into the Treasury. The unemployment rate dropped significantly. The GDP rose significantly. And prosperity was spread broad and wide. But it's been so long since Ronald Reagan did that, and it's been so long since we had anybody in the White House, including George W. Bush, that understood economics, that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So please, go over. I put these in the show notes page. They're over at com, and so you'll be able to see those. Now, real quick here, I want to get into this uh, George W. Bush video that I have here. It's on Facebook. It's a, it's a YouTube video. It's Fox News. I'm giving them full credit uh, for this. Hopefully I don't get uh, dinged for using it. Uh, but this is the full speech. It's about 16 minutes. So i got more, just enough time to show that and go over a couple points. But remember this, uh, this uh, little speech here in, in regards to George, what I said in the title show, George W. Bush's Great Democracy Speech. I wish you were still standing here. It's a face only a mother could love. No, it was a fabulous. Uh, <laughs> I love you, Ramon. Thank you very much for being here. And Grace Joe, thank you for your testimony. And Big Tim. I got to know Tim as a result of Presidential Leadership Scholars, a program at the Bush Center along with the Clinton Center. Uh, and uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with help from 41 and LBJ's libraries. Uh, uh, I want to... Um, uh, I am thrilled that friends of ours from Afghanistan, China, North Korea, and Venezuela are here as well. Uh, these are people who've experienced the absence of freedom. I mean, they know what it's like. And they know there's a better alternative than tyranny. Uh, Laura and I are uh, thrilled that the Bush Center supporters are here. Bernie, I want to thank you and your committee. I call him Bernie. Uh, it's amazing to have uh, Secretary Albright uh, share the stage with Condi and Ambassador Haley. Uh, for those of you who uh, you know, kind of take things for granted, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you. We are gathered in the cause of liberty. That's why we're here. This is a unique moment. The great democracies face new and serious threats, yet seem to be losing confidence in their own calling and competence. Economic, political, and national security challenges proliferate, and they're made worse by the tendency to turn inward. The health of the democratic spirit itself is at issue, and the renewal of that spirit is the urgent task at hand. Since World War II, America has encouraged and benefited from the global advance of free markets, from the strength of democratic alliances, and from the advance of free societies. At one level, this has been a raw calculation of interest. The 20th century features some of the worst horrors of history because dictators committed them. Free nations are less likely to threaten and fight each other. And free trade helped America make America into a global economic power. For more than 70 years, the presidents of both parties believed that American security and prosperity were directly tied to the success of freedom in the world. They knew that the success depended, in large part, on U.S. leadership. The mission came naturally because it expressed the DNA of American idealism. We know deep down that repression is not the wave of the future. We know that the desire for freedom is not confined to or owned by any culture. It is the inborn hope of our humanity. We know that free governments are the only way to ensure that the strong are just and the weak are valued. And we know that when we lose sight of our ideals, it is not democracy that has failed. It is the failure of those charged with preserving and protecting democracy. This is not to underestimate the historical obstacles to the development of democratic institutions and a democratic culture. Such problems nearly destroyed our country. And that should encourage a spirit of humility and a patience with others. Freedom is not merely a political menu option or a foreign policy fad. It should be the defining commitment of our country and the hope of the world. That appeal is proved not just by the content of people's hopes, but a noteworthy hypocrisy. No democracy pretends to be a tyranny. Most tyrannies pretend they are democracies. Democracy remains the definition of political legitimacy. That has not changed, and that will not change. Yet for years, challenges have been gathering to the principles we hold dear, and we must take them seriously. Some of these problems are external and obvious. Here in New York City, you know the threat of terrorism all too well. It's being fought even now on distant frontiers and in the hidden world of intelligence and surveillance. There is the frightening evolving threat of nuclear proliferation and outlaw regimes. There's an aggressive challenge by Russia and China to the norms and rules of global order. They propose revisions that always seem to involve less respect for the rights of free nations and less freedom for the individual.
These matters would be difficult under any circumstances. They are further complicated by a trend in Western countries away from global engagement and democratic confidence. Parts of Europe have developed an identity crisis. We have seen insolvency, economic stagnation, youth unemployment, anger about immigration, resurgent ethno-nationalism, and deep questions about the meaning and durability of the European Union. America is not immune from these trends. In recent decades, public confidence in our institutions has declined. Our governing class has often been paralyzed in the face of obvious and pressing needs. The American dream of upward mobility seems out of reach for some who feel left behind in a changing economy. Discontent deepened and sharpened partisan conflicts. Bigotry seems emboldened. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. There are some signs that the intensity of support for democracy itself has waned, especially among the young, who never experienced the galvanizing moral clarity of the Cold War, or never focused on the ruin of entire nations by socialist central planning. Some have called this democratic deconsolidation. Really, it seems to be a combination of weariness, frayed tempers, and forgetfulness. We've seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty. At times, it can seem like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates into dehumanization. Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Forgetting the image of God we should see in each other. We've seen nationalism distorted into nativism. We've forgotten the dynamism that immigration has always brought to America. We see a fading confidence in the value of free markets and international trade, forgetting that conflict, instability, and poverty follow in the wake of protectionism. We've seen the return of isolationist sentiments, forgetting that American security is directly threatened by the chaos and despair of distant places where threats such as terrorism, infectious disease, criminal gangs, and drug trafficking tend to emerge. In all these ways, we need to recall and recover our own identity. Americans have great advantage. To renew our country, we only need to remember our values. That's part of the reason we meet here today. How do we begin to encourage a new 21st century American consensus on behalf of democratic freedom and free markets? That's the question I pose to scholars at the Bush Institute. That's why Pete Weiner and Tom Maleo are with us today, have answered with the spirit of liberty at home in the world, the call to action paper. The recommendations come in broad categories. Here they are. First, America must harden its own defenses. Our country must show resolve and resilience in the face of external attacks on our democracy. And that begins with confronting a new era of cyber threats. America has experienced a sustained attempt by a hostile power to feed and exploit our country's divisions. 
According to our intelligence services, the Russian government has made a project of turning Americans against each other. This effort is broad, systemic, and stealthy. It's conducted across a range of social media platforms. Ultimately, this assault won't succeed. But foreign aggressions, including cyber attacks, disinformation, and financial influence, should never be downplayed or tolerated. It's a clear case where the strength of our democracy begins at home. We must secure our electoral infrastructure and protect our electoral system from subversion. The second category of recommendations concerns the projection of American leadership, maintaining America's role in sustaining and defending an international order rooted in freedom and free markets. Our security and prosperity are only found in wise, sustained global engagement, in the cultivation of new markets for American goods, in the confrontation of security challenges before they fully materialize and arrive on our shores, in the fostering of global health and development as alternatives to suffering and resentment, in the attraction of talent, energy, and enterprise from all over the world, in serving as a shining hope for refugees and a voice for dissidents, human rights defenders, and the oppressed. We should not be blind to the economic and social dislocations caused by globalization. People are hurting, they're angry, and they're frustrated. We must hear and help them, but we cannot wish globalization away any more than we could wish away the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution. One strength of free societies is their ability to adapt to economic and social disruptions, and that should be our goal. To prepare American workers for new opportunities, to care in practical, empowering ways for those who feel left behind. The first step should be to enact policies that encourage robust economic growth by unlocking the potential of the private sector and for unleashing the creativity and compassion of this country. Third focus of the document is strengthening democratic citizenship. And here we must put particular emphasis on the values and views of the young. Our identity as a nation, unlike many other nations, is not determined by geography or, or ethnicity, by soil or blood. Being an American involves the embrace of high ideals and civic responsibility. We become the heirs of Thomas Jefferson, by accepting the ideal of human dignity found in the Declaration of Independence. We become the heirs of James Madison by understanding the genius and values of the U.S. Constitution. We become the heirs of Martin Luther King, Jr. by recognizing one another not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This means that people of every race, religion, ethnicity can be fully and equally American. It means that bigotry or white supremacy in any form is blasphemy against the American creed. And it means the very identity of our nation depends on the passing of civic ideals to the next generation. We need a renewed emphasis on civic learning in schools.
and our young people need positive role models. Bullying and prejudice in our public life sets a national tone, provides permission for cruelty and bigotry, and compromises the moral education of children. The only way to pass along civic values is to first live up to them. Finally, the call to action calls on major institutions of our democracy, public and private, to consciously and urgently attend to the problem of declining trust. For example, our democracy needs a media that is transparent, accurate, and fair. Our democracy needs religious institutions that demonstrate integrity and champion civil discourse. Our democracy needs institutions of higher learning that are examples of truth and free expression. In short, it is time for American institutions to step up and provide cultural and moral leadership for this nation. Ten years ago, I attended a conference on democracy and security in Prague. The goal was to put human rights and human freedom at the center of our relationships with repressive governments. The Prague Charter, signed by champions of liberty Václav Havel, Natan Shirovsky, Josea Maria Aznar, called for the isolation and ostracism of regimes that suppress peaceful opponents by threats or violence. Little did we know that, a decade later, a crisis of confidence would be developing within the core democracies, making the message of freedom more inhibited and wavering. Little did we know that the repressive governments would be undertaking a major effort to encourage division in Western societies and undermine the legitimacy of elections. Repressive rivals, along with skeptics here at home, misunderstand something important. It's the great advantage of free societies that we creatively adapt to challenges without the direction of some central authority. Self-correction is the secret strength of freedom. We are a nation with a history of resilience and a genius for renewal. Right now, one of our worst national problems is the deficit of confidence. But the cause of freedom justifies all our faith and effort. It still inspires men and women in the darkest corners of the world. It will inspire a rising generation. The American spirit does not say we shall manage or we shall make the best of it. It says we shall overcome. And that is exactly what we're going to do with God's help. Thank you. folks uh, i know i'm getting down to i got a little under five minutes on blog talk radio but we're going to go over if we have to so at the top of the hour one o'clock the the live feed will stop uh as far as any new listeners if you're logged on you're listening live you'll still be able to hear uh, my remarks on this but this is too important not uh not to comment on so i, I really feel uh that we need to comment on this um the one thing I want you to notice in this, and this is why I call it George Bush's great democracy speech, is how many times, and I didn't count them up, but if you read through that and listen to that speech, how many times did he use the word democracy or its variants? 
and actually call the United States of America a democracy. This is part of the problem. People have gotten too used to the notion that we're a democracy when we're not, and I just went through the spiel in my monologue that we are a constitutional representative republic. We're a republic. A republic has nothing to do with the democracy. Now, does a republic have democratic um, ways of doing things inside the republic? Yes, we vote. We vote for representatives that represent us in government. We, um, uh, we don't rule by the mob. Uh, anybody that believes that we're a republic will denounce anybody, anybody who uses the term democracy to describe us. And like I said in my monologue, we're not a type of democracy. A republic has nothing to do with democracies. And this is one of the biggest fallacies in a speech. Now, let me say this before we really get down into the meat of the speech, uh, because I want to make some folks mad. <laughs> not really, but I know this is going to make some folks mad. Uh, when George Bush was in the presidency, I did vote for George Bush over uh, Al Gore and also over Kerry. Okay, because neither one of them were good enough, and I held my nose voting for George W. Bush. I was a Republican back then. I hadn't got disgusted enough for the Republican Party until the summer of 2007 with the amnesty deal that John McCain and, and Lindsey Graham <laughs> uh, were putting forward. I had enough. I had enough of the GOP, and, and I switched parties. But having, you know, a few years removed from the Bush presidency, if someone were to ask me if I thought President Bush's term in office, his eight years in office, if that was a failed presidency, I would have to say with a resounding yes, it was. 9-11 happened under his watch. And I believe through all the commissions and all the stories and everybody talking about it, uh, that 9-11 could have been prevented. Or at least the severity of it could have been prevented. Um, and that was under George W. Bush. Whether the mechanisms were put in before um, George W. Bush came into office, he came into office and nothing was done about them. Then, in George W. Bush's last term in office, his second term, uh, he brought, because this was under his watch again, he brought, along with a Democrat majority in the House and the Senate, 2006-2008, they brought the world to the brink of insolvency through the housing crisis when that bubble burst. That was under George W. Bush. I've shared on this show and podcast years ago some speeches he had about, you know, part of the American dream is owning a home and we're got to get everybody in a home. And he was wrong about that. The American dream is not owning a home. The American dream is about freedom and liberty and justice for all. That's what the American dream is. And how you express that American dream, whether you buy a house or rent, that doesn't really matter. You have the freedom to do both. But George W. Bush and his administration, I believe, was, was uh, part and parcel uh, to blame because it happened under his watch. So you have two major events that happened under his presidency. He was a moderate at best. He was never a conservative, a moderate, moderate at best. Then he comes out here in this uh, um, speech, uh, and <laughs> we're going to speech by here just a little bit. And uses democracy 
I don't know how many times in there. Now, did you catch in the beginning of the speech? You know, he was thanking everybody. You know, uh, I, I love you, Raymond. Thank you very much, Grace Joe. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, thanks, Big Tim. Uh, I got to know Tim as a result of presidential leadership scholars at the Bush Center, along with the Clinton Foundation, with help from 41 and LGB's libraries. The Clinton Foundation? So we see that Bush has ties to the Clinton Foundation here. And that's still being investigated. You know, it, in, in other words, it throws more shadow on his speech than anything. And this is touted by the lamestream media and those in the establishment as a totally anti-Trump speech. Now, does he address some things here with Trump? Absolutely. Uh, does he hit a home run with them? No. If anything, he hits a foul ball uh, with them. But I just want to point out about that Trump administration. And it is the top of the hour, so the live feed has stopped, although it is still recording on Blog Talk Radio. He goes on down. Uh, he talks about the great democracy, the democratic spirit, uh, uh, experience, or the spirit. Uh, then he goes on talking about since World War II, America was encouraged and benefited from the global advance of free markets. Here's a man, a president, that didn't believe in free markets. You remember what happened in a second term when the, when the uh, economy melted down, right? You remember that, that, what he told that reporter? Uh, we have to abandon free market principles in order to uh, save the free market. That's, that's how we do things around here. He's not a free market guy. Never, never was. But yet he talks about uh, advancement of global free markets. And people were clapping, yay, 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 all right? Uh, and again, he talks about democratic alliances uh, from the advanced free societies. He considers us a democracy. Again, a fallacy that's being put forward, and it's a damaging fallacy, folks. It really is. He talks about free nations are less likely to threaten uh, and fight each other, and free trade helps America uh, make America into a global economic power. And he'll go on talk about, and this is something that I'm still struggling with, but uh, boy, howdy, you know, we, we got to call him as we seize him. Um, when, he, when he talks about free markets or free nations are less likely to threaten and fight, fight each other, folks, what have we been doing since 9-11? What have we been doing? We've been out there threatening and fighting other nations. Now, some of it may be for legitimate causes, but you can't say they're all for legitimate causes. And they never put a good, uh, uh, you know, uh, good information out so, th so the American people could understand why we're doing what we're doing. And again, this goes back. He talks about later in the speech, he talks about surveillance and security of the nation. Um, I watched the film last night, uh, Imitation Game, with uh, uh, Mr. Cumberbatch. And it's about the, uh, the uh, British code breakers at, uh, I think it was Berkeley Park, uh, where they were working on the Enigma. Well, they broke the Enigma, but they couldn't let it out to the military advisors or to Churchill that they broke the Enigma. Because once Germany found out, if they found out, you know, if they started thwarting all these, then they they'd had to figure out their codes were being broken. So they turned it over to MI6, which was their secret, you know, the, the ultra-secret uh, spy agency in Britain. And they decided on their own what information was going to get out, what information, you know, to keep that secret. So there was a lot of lives that were 
lost and killed because of that. Now, I'm not going to get into the morality of that, whether it was right or wrong. They did it. I'm just reporting history. But how do we know that surveillance society that we have now is working in the American people, especially in America, the America's best people's best interest? We know under the Obama administration that they were spying on newspapers and they were spying on individuals and that with our surveillance. Another scandal for the Obama administration where my cousin out in Iowa doesn't believe that there was any scandals during the eight years that Barack Obama was in there. You know, anyway, I don't want to get into that uh, right now. Um, he goes on to say, and I'm just uh, going down here picking pieces out here. Um, we know that free governments are the only way to ensure that the strong are just and the weak are valued. And we know that when we lose sight of our ideas, it is not democracy that has failed. It is the failure of those charged with pre preserving and protecting democracy. That's the problem, folks. Again, another reference to democracy, but the problem is democracies will not protect the just or the weak. If they see them as a threat to the body politic, to the whole, they will not protect them. And to say we need to protect democracy when we're not a democracy is, again, a slap in the face to the founders and the framers and goes contrary to exactly what we are. We are a republic, okay? Um, and he keeps going through. He talks about democratic institutions and democratic culture, uh, you know, he, he talks about it's, it. This is not to underestimate the historical obstacles to the development of democratic institutions and a democratic culture. Such problems nearly destroyed our country. And I think that's part of the digs he's putting at, at Trump. But the problem is in a republic. In a republic, the free press is guarded. As long as it's a free press. We do not have a free press in this country. As people know it. The lamestream media, or some people call it the mainstream media. The dominant media culture we have in the United States of America is perfectly happy with us being called a democracy and descending into a, so, uh, a social democracy. They're happy with that. And they don't report the truth. They report a narrative inside of echo chamber. And President Trump attacks that all the time. The new Main Street media, a lot of the folks I use, attack this idea of democracy. Okay? He goes on to say, uh, that appeal has proved not just to, to, be, to the content of people's hopes, but a noteworthy hypocrisy. No democracy pretends to be a tyranny. Um, excuse me, democracies always are a tyranny. They're a tyranny of the majority, President Bush. No tyrannies pretend, most tyrannies pretend to be democracies. Most tyrannies start off using democratic values, institutions, and culture to get their way. And so, yes, democracies do pretend to be tyrannies, but they're, they're a tyranny through the voting booth, through the mob rule, through uh, the echo chamber, the narrative, the talking points, whatever you want to call it. Uh, democracy remains the definition of political legitimacy. If you're a democracy, yeah. If you're a republic, no. 
The republic remains the definition of political legitimacy here in America because we are a republic. That has not changed and that will not change. And he goes on to talk about uh, here in New York City, the threat of terror. You know the threat of terrorism, terrorism also well. That was one of the first failings of the Bush administration. You have to lay that at his feet, even though things could have gone differently in the other presidencies that happened under his watch. Uh, there, are, there, there is an aggressive challenge by Russia and China. And he talks about China interfering in our, or uh, Russia interfering in our elections and, uh, you know, uh, shaking our democratic conf- confidence. Again, I got I to gotta call him as I see him. How many countries throughout the years has the United States interfered with their internal politics through the CIA or otherwise? If you want an example, go Google, if they haven't taken it down yet, go Google Operation Ajax. Last time I seen it, it's still up on Wikipedia. Our CIA and British Petroleum and MI6 or MI5, whoever it was, went over in Iran and ousted a democratically elected it was a doctor, I can't remember his first name, his last name is Muhammad, Dr. Muhammad, democratically elected, took him out of power because he dared to want to make the resources in Iran, Iran's. Wanted to nationalize the oil, and so Iran could profit from it. How dare he? And then this Shah was installed, a puppet dictator of the United States. Now tell me where our hands are clean in world affairs, and we we point a finger at Russia saying they get involved in our affairs. Well, don't we also? I'm not justifying Russia. I'm just saying we better better make sure there's not a beam sticking out of our eye before we take a speck out of somebody else's eye. (laughs) Again, I'm stealing from scriptures there. I'm sorry. Um, Let's see, I'm already down. I'm getting down close to page three on this thing. Um, he talks about uh, there are some signs that the intensity of support for democracy itself has waned, especially among the young who never experienced the galvanizing moral clarity of the Cold War. Um, I myself, I'm a Cold War warrior. I served on a nuclear ballistic submarine tender uh, where we service Polaris submarine, missile submarines, and uh, we were in the thick of it where we were at over in Scotland. And there was a moral clarity to that. There was a moral clarity of that for me anyway. But support for democracy itself has waned. It's, it's How in the world do you expect our young to experience any of this or to know any of this when you're teaching we're a democracy, but yet they see that all of our institutions, according to the Constitution, are a republic? That's a lot of confusion for young folks, and they bought into this idea that we are a democracy, so therefore if they get enough people together, they can change things. And then they wonder why people uh, sort of push against that. Uh, guys like me and folks that think like me that are constitutional conservatives that know that we're a republic. And then we push against this. Okay. Um, I just want to. I just want to make sure. Okay, I'm. I'm still broadcasting there. Okay, let's get back over to the uh, the document here. So um, it just uh, we never focused on the the ruin of entire nations by socialist central planning. And the problem <laughs> he is mixing terms up here. That's exactly what democracies do. They fall into socialism, the fascism or socialism, and central planning. Central planning is at the root of democracies. 
is that the root of democracies. Again, let's do some speech thine here, okay? Come on, George, let's do this. We've seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty. Again, probably another dig at Trump and probably a dig at uh, commentators like myself. I try not to be cruel with anything, uh, but you know, disregard for casual cruelty. At times it seems like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement ex escalates into dehumanization. And I experience that on a daily basis every time I get on social media. I, I, this morning I was called some names I can't even tell you on, on a feed, on an Indivisible Guide feed. I was called some horrible names on there. That's dehumanizing. I don't take it personally. You know, I look at the, <laughs> I look at the source, folks, and I told it was a guy. I told him, I said, I, I made my case to what he was saying. And then I came back and I told him, I said, oh, by the way, uh, your name calling him profanity uh, says to me, you don't have any other points to make or didn't have a point to make to begin with, so you lost the argument before you even started. Sorry. And I posted that. You know, and that may be a little sarcastic, but, folks, that's exactly what happens. And they, the problem is uh, the blame for animosity and disagreement is too often, too often put on the wrong parties. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't Trump supporters out there that have animosity and, and dehumanized folks. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that, that one party, the Democrats, are like white as the driven snow, and all the blame is put on anybody that disagrees with them. Just like that professor um, in, in an article earlier where he talks about that, that you know free speech, so these, these Republicans or anybody that oppose us, that's violence. It's not violence. Not at all. Anyway. And, for, and he goes on to say, forgetting the image of God we should see in each other. And, and that's where it comes down to. I, I want to see and I try to see the image of God in, in everybody because it, it's there. We're all created with spirits. We're created in the image of God in, in Genesis chapter 1. We're spirit beings. And we should see that image of God in everybody and try to. And I think that would bring us back to a more civil public discourse. But not enough people do that. Um, he goes on talking about immigration. And that's a definite dig against uh, the, uh, Donald Trump. Again, he talks about the, the fading confidence in the free markets. Well, you don't believe in the free markets to begin with, George. So, you know, that's, again, one of those comments that just sort of floats out there and doesn't really mean anything because you're not for it to begin with. Talks about isolationist sentiments. Again, uh, when, we, when we've seen the return of isolation, isolationist sentiments, forgetting that American society was directly threatened by the chaos and despair, despair of uh, distant places, where threats such as terrorism, infectious disease, criminal gangs, and drug trafficking tend to emerge. Now, this is this old doctrine that John McCain and Lindsey Graham had brought out under the Bush presidency that we'll fight them over there so they won't come over here. And the problem with that, it leaves the, quote-unquote, the homeland defenseless. If we build the defenses of America up, control the immigration, not not disallow it but control who comes into our country whether we build a wall on the southern wall on the southern border or tighten up our visa programs if you were here on a visa and, and your visa's up we keep tabs on you and you go home things like that and secure the country a lot of a lot of folks aren't going to go up against a strong person you know that's sort of a biblical principle you know if the strong man knew 
when the robber was going to show up, he would have fortified at his place and the robber wouldn't have got in. And so we must be ever vigilant on this. And we're not isolationists because we do that. And, that's, and, 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 and Donald Trump has been accused of that. I've been accused of that. Other people have this idea that what's wrong with securing the homeland first? What's wrong with securing America first and then helping our allies? It just, a lot of, a lot of things in this speech really just irk me. Uh, in all these ways, we need to recall and recover our own identity. America has a great advantage to renew our country. We only need to remember our values. Absolutely. We need to remember that we're a republic. We're a constitutional republic. We need to remember that we're a representative republic. We need to remember that the, the Constitution is a, is a limiting document on the federal government, which means it puts limits and restraints on the federal government. Those are the values we need to remember. Not democracy, not saying 51% of the people decide that we're not going to listen to the Constitution anymore, so we're going to vote it out. That's not our country. That's not our values. But that's exactly what's being taught, and that's what George W. Bush is teaching when he gives speeches like this. He's giving aid and comfort, comfort to the enemy, as it were. Uh, of the values of the United States. He goes on to talk about, uh, I hate this, this word consensus, you know, this uh, 21st century American consensus. Either you're right or you're wrong. Just because you have a consensus saying something's wrong or you have a consensus saying something's right doesn't necessarily mean make it right or wrong. You must seek out the truth and the facts of a matter, and consensus has very little to do with that. Very little to do with that. Um, again, democratic freedom and free markets. You know, he's not a free marketer, folks. We must abandon the free market principles and save the free market. It's just as simple as that. No, it isn't. <laughs> you must abandon the principles of democratic socialism and central planning to save the free markets. That's how you, do, that's how you save the free markets. They'll save themselves. Um. Oh, let me get, I got to get down in here. I don't want to belabor this too much. We already talked about the Russian government getting involved in everything. Uh, again, he talks later on, he talks about freedom and, and free markets, um, security challenges. And before they fall, we, we need to reckon, or we need in confrontation of security challenges before they fully materialize and arrive on our shores again. Got to fight them over there so they don't come over here. I think it's a wrong headed strategy. We need to make. We need to make the United States so fortified that no one would dare. Nobody would dare come over and attack us. Um, and one of the, one of the, and this may be a side note, but one of the things I see that that uh, takes away our defense is these gun, these folks that want to confiscate our guns. I have antagonists on Facebook that want to confiscate our guns, and they they wrongly tell me. And I think it's funny that they actually answer their own argument. Well, the government's not coming to get you and take you and enslave you and, and take your guns. Well, then the Second Amendment must be doing its job, shouldn't it? Huh. Anyway, goes on to say, um, we should not be blind to the economic, social dislocations caused by globalization. And again, here's some more things. This, is, this globalization is a dig at free trade. Because again, remember, George W. Bush is not a free marketer. He isn't. And he doesn't like free trade. Free trade is part of the global economy. And we can't just live in isolation outside of the global economy. That's bad for America and bad for the rest of the economies of the world. 
it opens the actual actual free trade actually opens up competition between us and other countries and our manufacturers and theirs and our you know consumers and their consumers it benefits everybody free markets left alone actually benefit everybody and it, and destroys this idea of globalization and and globalization of economics as far as being able from people to people corporation corporation company to companies to be able to freely do and interact and make contracts with other folks as long as we're not harming them or anybody else to do it as long as we're not being the aggressors free markets folks um, our strength of free societies is their ability to adapt to economic and social uh, disruptions. Yeah, that is our strength, but we've got to keep the government out of it. Most of these, most of these uh, economic and social disruptions are caused by the government, i.e. the housing crisis. We had um, regulators that were asleep at the wheel. We had uh, Congress folks that were in the pockets of these big bankers and, and uh uh, investment co companies and stuff like that, and it was it was a it wasn't a, it wasn't the fault of the free market is what I'm trying to say. It was government intervention or lack thereof that allowed the housing bubble to happen. And folks, it's still going on today. It, the the housing that those toxic assets are still being traded today, but nobody nobody's watching it at all. Um, I love this, and we'll, we'll cover this last part, and then I'll wrap it up here. Uh, he talks about our identity as a nation, unlike many other nations, is not determined by geography or ethnicity, by soil or by blood. Um, why not? America is geographically defined. There are different ethnicities in our country. And there's different, but there's not different blood that flows through our veins. We're all Americans. Whether you're naturalized or whether you're, you're natural born here. I, I, I'm a native born American, folks. And American blood flows, flows through my veins as well as the person who just got nationalized or a naturalized uh, citizen. So again, I, I don't think George W. Bush gets it. I, I really don't. He says, being American involves the embrace of high ideas and civic responsibility. Absolutely. We become the heirs of Thomas Jefferson by accepting the idea that the idea of human dignity found in the Declaration of Independence. Our, our human dignity was not found in the Declaration of Independence. It was recognized by Thomas Jefferson and the Committee of Five in the Declaration of Independence. Again, there's a wrong-headed idea out there, and if you ask a lot of people out there, especially those in the anti-freedom groups, They'll tell you that our rights come from government. They're granted to us by government, which is wrong-headed. It goes against everything that Thomas Jefferson would have said. So our human dignity is not found in the Declaration of Independence. It's recognized there. We become heirs of James Madison by understanding the genius and values of the U.S. Constitution. Yet, we have a guy that's giving lip service. George W. Bush is giving lip service to the Constitution because he doesn't believe in the restraints of that. Look at his administration doesn't believe in the restraints at all or the values of the Constitution at all. And I dare say there is hardly any president that has in the past. At some time, they violated the values of the Constitution, some to a lesser degree than others. We become the heirs of Martin Luther King Jr. by recognizing one another by not the color of our skin, but the, by the content of our character. And every time I bring that up and say, I, I, I even say it in my opening that, you know, that you know, I, I'm, 
your constitutional warrior fighting for your right just to be an American. And when I point that out, that I want to treat people as Americans, if you're an American citizen or you're living here legally as a, a, as a legal alien or you've been natu naturalized citizen, you, you went, become a citizen, took the oath and everything, I want to recognize you as an American. But you know what? I get taken to the woodshed for that. I'm a white, privileged male. How dare I think that way? Whatever, what other way am I supposed to think? Do you want me to divide people up like intersectional feminism does? Martin Luther King Jr. didn't. I'm not going to do it either. And I, I'll let you on another secret. God and Jesus Christ, they're no respecter of persons, which means they don't care about your skin color, your ethnicity, or whatever. <laughs> Think about that one. Anyway. He talks about, real quicker, he talks about the bigot, bigotry or white supremacy in any form is blasphemy against the American creed. But we have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. The way we're trying to deal with it now isn't working. And to say that there isn't racism or bigotry or white supremacy in the country is a fallacy. It, it just it's, it does not ring true with that. But we still have to deal with it. How do you deal with that? You let them air their ideas out, and then you take them to the intellectual woodshed, but you do it in a public way, and you do it with facts and truth and love, and people listen to you. People will hear you. They'll absolutely will. So anyway, you can go down and read the rest of this. I just, the biggest thing I want you to do is go through, go through that and see how the... Uh, how many times he uses the word democracy? Honestly. I, I just, it was unbelievable how many times he used that. So I say George W. Bush's great democracy speech tongue-in-cheek. Because it was a great democracy speech, but it had very little to do with our republic, which is what we are. So, <laughs> I know I went about 25 minutes over there. Hopefully it's still recording Blog Talk Radio, but if it's not... I will be uploading the whole audio to this. Again, I am working on getting uh, away from Blog Talk Radio and hosting the, the show on the, the DanClemmaShow.com from there. It will not be a live show over there, but I will upload a podcast every day that I do the YouTube show. Uh, we're going to continue with the YouTube. I, I believe YouTube's a good uh, platform for me to be on. I think it's a growing platform, and I, at least my views are starting to grow on that. So, um, And I appreciate, folks. That if you like the show here, before I end it, if you like the show, please subscribe to it and hit. The, if you want to be reminded of upcoming shows, and if you're on YouTube a lot like I am, I sometimes use YouTube like a television show. There's so much good stuff on there to watch and, and so much thought-provoking uh, things to see on there and to listen to and to digest that, that you hit the bell that'll remind you that I have new programs coming up or put out a new short video. Uh, and I'm also looking for supporters, folks. Um, I am not, and I'm going to do a video here in the near future. I am not a advertiser purist in in my show here. Uh, there's a lot of people out there. Oh, we're 100% fan supported. Well, well, good on you. Good on you. But I follow an example of a man I, I deeply respect in broadcast uh, radio broadcast history, Paul Harvey, and he was not afraid to have sponsors on the show. But neither was he going to allow the sponsors to dictate to him what he was going to say on the show. Didn't happen. 
And so, yeah, I, I'm looking for folks to help me right now on Patreon. Uh, donations over at Patreon and PayPal. I have everything set up over on the show.com that you can do that through those links over there uh, to help me uh, build up the show here as far as uh, giving, helping me with uh, uh, monthly expenses at my house and then growing the show from there. And uh, I am uh, actively looking for advertisers. I email quite a few of them, but I just don't have the viewership yet or the listenership because of what Blog Talk Radio is doing with their uh, algorithms and that. So that's why one of the reasons why I'm getting away from there. So if I get up to a certain level, which isn't that high, I will get advertisers on the show here. But I have an understanding with some of them that they do not dictate to me my, con my uh, content, even to the point of if you want to pull your advertisers because you don't agree with me, that's on you. I'm not going to change me unless I'm unless I'm wrong and untruthful. So if you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe and, and not just subscribe. Please comment and watch the videos and let me know. Give me some feedback. I'm also on VidMe, uh, another platform. I'm on a bunch of uh, social network uh, platforms. When I in the beginning of the show, I show them. I'm on Minds, Facebook, VidMe, uh, Blog Talk Radio for now. I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Pinterest. I'm on um, uh, oh, I always forget that one right there. I'm on Gab AI, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm diversified and I'm countrywide <laughs> as it were. So please folks, whatever you can do to help me, I'd appreciate that. Uh, I'm looking for minimal support just to, to pay the, help pay the monthly bills. And, uh, from then on out, uh, I'll be looking to hire folks to help me to get the show done. Uh, better for y'all and actually expand it into other areas and that. So this has been the Dan Clemens Show. I'm your host. Let me get over here and get this started here. It's been the Dan Clemens Show. I'm your host, Dan Clemens, your constitutional warrior, fighting for your right just to be an American. And remember, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Have a great rest of the day and God bless. And we'll see you tomorrow at noon. Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.